just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and interesting issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. With two weeks to go until the election, the latest polling shows a majority of 68 for the Conservative Party. So can anything still trip Boris Johnson up? One of those events could be Trump's visit next week, so how high are the stakes there? And last, what led to the failure of the Israeli kibbutz? First up, James Forsyth and Katie Balls interviewed the Prime Minister for the magazine this week. The Boris they found was optimistic, humorous and, above all, on message. So can anything still trip him up in the final fortnight of the election campaign? Katie speaks to James and Paul Goodman, editor of the Conservative Home website. James, in this week's Spectator, we interview Boris Johnson and his key message, apart from get Brexit done, which I think perhaps has landed now with listeners, was about how this would be a different type of Conservative government to one we have seen previously. Can you tell us about that message and whether or not it was a convincing one? Well, the most dramatic part of his message is how much he distances himself from austerity. He says that, you know, in 2010, he was telling people in that government that he didn't think austerity was the, was the way forward for the UK. He says, I don't understand why they were, they were taking an idea from Stafford Cripps, the Labour Chancellor who continued rationing during the Attlee government after the war. And he kind of pointed out that Stafford Cripps used to drink his own urine. And that was not an approach that had recommended himself, that, that recommends itself to, to, to him, to Boris Johnson. So, you know, and, but if... If suggesting that, that lightning austerity is drinking your own pee was not distancing enough, he also basically talked about how he interpreted the Brexit result as being... And basically said, look, we're going to be a traditional Tory government when it comes to national defence, crime, cutting taxes. But in terms of getting the whole country moving, we're going to take a different approach. And he basically said... But he thought the economic model that had grown up alongside EU membership had left parts of a country behind. And he basically indicated that he would kind of rip up all the rules about infrastructure and that the Treasury had been too mean about funding projects essentially outside London and the South East. And he is trying to pitch himself as someone who's basically going to build bridges, rail systems, you name it, all over the country. And it is, it is quite clear that this is his appeal to those seats that are going to determine this election in the Midlands and the North East. Paul, when it comes to this message from Boris Johnson, it does seem that in this campaign he's been fairly successful at distancing himself from most of the past nine years. In fact, when you looked at the various television debates, it often feels as though Joe Swinson is the person who's getting all the blame for coalition cuts, you could say, rather than the person who is the leader of the Tory party. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I smiled with rueful recognition when I read Joran James's interview with Boris Johnson because you did a sterling job in squeezing as much juice out of the lemon as you could. Come again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Boris Johnson has always been very, very, very good and he's got even better about staying on message. So you got from him pretty much the message he wanted to give about austerity that James has just described. I mean, we interviewed him at Con Home during the leadership campaign. We did get a story out of him. The story was people in his cabinet would have to be committed to 
Brexit under any terms. But it's very much a story he wanted to give. You know, you were not going anywhere with him where he didn't want to go. And the jokes are very interesting. You know, he'll tell the jokes he wants to tell, but he's very wise about anything that will get him potentially into trouble. So when I tried to get him to say that he would engage in a nude wrestling match with Jeremy Hunt, he succeeded almost entirely in closing this down, right? He could see, he could spot the danger signals. In fact, it's only... I mean, not entirely <laughs> his and Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it was only when actually, to be fair, he did create, there was one slip, which I'm sorry, but off the topic, but it was when he and Andrew Jimson, his, one of his biographers, got talking about life in Downing Street. And he got talking about Macmillan and Macmillan reading books. And um, Boris Johnson said, oh, yes, he said, yes, of course, take a trollop to bed. <coughs> At this point, his press officers, who'd, who'd been dozing for this, you know, boring questions from Goodman and Jimson, at this point, they came completely to life because they could see a terrible headline coming sorry i've gone way no. off piece <laughs> so i mean i have to say i didn't think the press officers looked overjoyed <laughs> when he started talking about piss um, yeah exactly but that, again that, or you're and i will say on this podcast because james that, is in the room that. now <laughs> paul you mentioned boris johnson's ability for message discipline and actually mm. that's one of the things that has really underlined this campaign we have heard the same sound bites again and again but we also heard them in 2017 under Theresa may mm. strong and stable mm. this time we have get brexit done mm. do you think the conservatives are having a successful campaign compared with last time yes it's very dangerous for them because expectations may be running ahead of the actual result so let's just suppose for the sake of the argument Boris Johnson came back with a majority of 15 not bad going under the circumstances I mean roughly what David Cameron came back with in 2015 I don't know what you both think but I think in the Tory tribe there'd be a certain sense of oh oh is that it you thought you could sort of you know smash it out of the park and you're back in parliament with a Cameron style small majority MPs are rebellious these days only seven rebels can sort of wreck it, wreck it for you. But, you know, they're having a very good campaign, largely because, you know, the message discipline is there. The message is solid, well-researched. The manifesto was a success. It's offered no hostages to fortune. We've got past the stage where it could have unravelled. So, so far, it's working well for them. James, when it comes to the obstacles ahead, what do you think could still trip Boris Johnson up with about two weeks to go? At the moment, the polls show a pretty comfortable lead. There's been a little bit of narrowing this week. So I, I think there are four dangers for them. I think the first danger is Remain panic leading to mass Remainer tactical voting. I think even on these projections that show the Tories winning a fairly comfortable majority, they suggest they're going to win that majority quite narrowly in each individual seat. And so if you had Remainers turning up everywhere to vote for the candidate best place to beat the Tory, then that majority could very quickly get whittled down or even disappear entirely. I think the second danger is these opinion polls and these projections suggesting that the Tories are on course for a majority lead to people believing that they don't have to vote Tory. So angry Tory Remainers in the South think, oh, I can, I can protest and vote Liberal Democrat and not let Corbyn into Downing Street and signal my displeasure. Or Labour voters in the Midlands and the North can think, oh, I don't want the Tories to win a big majority and I quite like my local MP or my local Labour candidate. So I'll, I'll vote Labour, but don't worry, Brexit's going to get done because the Tories are going to win anyway. 
then I think the third danger is that Labour are throwing Hail Mary passes at the moment. You, know, you had the Waspy Women announcement. You've had this attempt to take 460 rather boring pages of trade discussions and claim that that proves that the NHS is about to be sold out. But the, the thing about Hail Mary passes is they normally don't work and they are a sign of panic. But if they do, if someone does catch it in the end zone, you do get a touchdown. And so that, that's, that's, that's danger three. And danger four, I think, is the Trump visit. Donald Trump is a disruptor. And if he turns up and completely lays into Jeremy Corbyn. And if he turns this election into a question of whose side are you on, Jeremy Corbyn or Donald Trump, that is a rare thing. That is a popularity contest that in this country, Jeremy Corbyn could win. Well, when it comes to the parts of the country the Tories are hoping to pick up seats in, during his interview with The Spectator, Boris Johnson is very keen to not get dragged into whether it's Labour leavers he was going after, even if the handbook to all Tory candidates suggests it is a key group to them. Instead, he was saying, you know, every vote counts. We are trying to get votes from everyone. But if you were sitting in CCHQ right now, what part of the country would you be most worried about when it comes to whether trying to, I suppose, keep seats or make gains? I think another way of saying what James has just said is looking at the mountain from a different angle. You know, James has given reasons, all of which are solid. A different way of looking at it is geographically. And I think there are basically three elections going on. There's one in Scotland, Tories v. you've written about this week, Tories v. the SNP and independence. And that the, does seem to be going better than many had expected. It, it does. It does. Let's come to that in, 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 in a sec. Then there's the, the, the Midlands and the North, where, you know, Boris Johnson's trying to cut through there. And then there's what I call Romania. There's the South East and all those Tory Remain voters. It's a very crude picture because they're bits that don't really fit in it, like the South West. But these are like three lemons on a fruit machine. If Boris Johnson hits all three, he's going to have a stonking majority. If he hits only one, right, so if the Scots decide that they dislike the Tories so much after all, they're going to vote SNP, or if he can't persuade those former Labour background voters in the Midlands that he's serious about a different sort of Toryism, or if the Tory Remainers in the South prize their anger over Brexit, over their fear of Jeremy Corbyn, particularly if they think Boris Johnson's going to win big, if two of those things go wrong then he won't get his majority. If all three broadly go right, then he could win very big. And at the moment, they look good for him. Yeah, and that's briefly to finish as because talk about those three parts that you've outlined. So firstly, we have Scotland, as you say, I've written about in the magazine this week. And when the election was first called, what was being predicted in Scotland was if you listen to the pollsters mm. anyway, a near total wipeout, the idea they could lose nearly all 13 seats, perhaps just have David Mundell as the only panda left north of the border. But instead, I think partly because Nicola Sturgeon has pushed so hard on independence, you have a situation where a lot of Tory MPs feel more confident in their seats. And while they think they might lose a couple, there's space to perhaps make some gains to make up for any shortfall. James, do you think in Scotland there is more confidence that actually this is going to be fairly limited in terms of losses. Yeah, I, I think in September, as you say, the kind of speculation was there could be a dozen Tory losses. Even when the election campaign was first called, I think it was people probably thought that the Tories would be doing well to have five seats in Scotland. I now think that they would regard five seats in Scotland as a very disappointing night. I think we probably moved up to their perception that eight seats is the floor. And I think their ceiling is kind of rising 
all the time. And I think there is some optimism now that they could come back with, you know, a panel-based poll at the weekend that suggested they could only lose one seat. And I think that, you know, things are working for them. And I think the things are working for them because in Scotland, them and the SNP have a mutual interest in making this election about the constitutional question. And by that, I mean the union, not Brexit. And if you look at the front of that Tory manifesto in Scotland, it just says no to Indy Ref 2. And I think that message, as you put it in your piece, right, as you have those voters in Paul Mar- and I, I thought it was a fascinating thing about your piece, was you went... With, you can also come again. No, you went to Paul Marston's seat, East Renfrewshire. That is the ninth most Remain seat in the country. On any normal reading of the election, that seat should be a goner for the Tories. You know, you shouldn't even have bothered taking the train up there, right? But, still expensive. but you are finding that he had, like, not that he's definitely going to hold it, but that he has some kind of chance. And it, it seems to me from reading your piece that the reason he has a chance is that these voters basically, have, whatever they think of Brexit, and I'm not saying they've all been converted to loving it, they're more worried about Indy Ref 2 than Brexit, and therefore voting for the Tories to try and stop that seems to them a fair trade. Now, on to the second uh, area you outlined, Paul, which is the Midlands and the North. Um, This does appear to be at least a lot of where the media attention has been, I suppose, from Westminster. And also in terms of, I suppose, the positioning, in terms of the manifesto the Tories have put out, is this type of Labour leave voters or just former swing Labour Tory voters. Do you get the impression from MPs on the ground in those areas that this is a place where that message is landing? Yes. They may be wrong. Yeah. Um, I, each week at the weekend, I ring up a, a bunch and ask them how it is. And they either say it's very good, it's not changed since last week, or it's very good, it's got even better. And I think there's a sense in which, if they do very well, the uncrowned hero of this election will be Nick Timothy. Because the approach that he pushed in 2017, even then, the Tories won some seats, Stoke South, North East Derbyshire, Middlesbrough South and Cleveland, one of the Walsall seats. But of course they lost more. If this works out, you know, Nick Timothy's version of just about managing conservatism, it's not all that different from what Dominic Cummings and his gang are doing. So poor old Nick will have triumphed two not, years too late. Not even got a seat uh, in the process, despite several candidate selections. And now the final final section, which um, Paul outlined, is clearly southwest, particularly, but these Lib Dem Tory seats. James, Boris Johnson has been visiting these areas this week. And he's also, as we spoke about on Coffee House Shots, been fielding MPs who are probably more more likely to be liked by the section of voters, Nicky Morgan, Matt Hancock, people seen as One Nation Conservatives. Do you think that their message is landing among this group or will they fall to Lib Dems? I think their chance in this seat all depends on how realistic the prospects of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister is. I, I think in these seats, a bit in the way that Scottish voters, Scottish Remain voters might not like Brexit, but they fear Indy Ref 2 more. These voters in these seats, when you talk to the candidates down there, they dislike Brexit, but as a general rule, especially true of Tory Remainers, I think three quarters of them roughly take this view, they fear Corbyn more than they fear Brexit. So if on the morning of December 12th, when their alarm clock goes off, they think, crikey, if I don't vote Tory today, Jeremy Corbyn might end up as Prime Minister, then I think the Tories will be safe. But if they wake up on December 12th and think, oh, all the headlines are about how big Boris Johnson's majority are going to be, then I think they will take the opportunity to give the Tories a kicking. So I think, I think that all depends on that question of how 
does the election seem to be a foregone conclusion or a genuine contest on polling day? And I mean, that is what it will come down to. And a lot of that might come down to polling and we'll bring you all the polling updates on our daily podcast, Coffee House Shots. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, James. This week's issue also features an interview with Pete Townsend, the lead guitarist of The Who, by Sam Leith. Sam first spoke to him about his new novel, The Age of Anxiety, on the weekly Spectator Book Club podcast. And here, Pete tells Sam about the psychic inspiration to his book. Everybody that I know knows somebody who is autistic or suffering from Asperger's now, whether they're, whether they're children of, of people that, uh, that, that have had uh, autistic children or they're just people who they know are, are borderline. And, and I think that we probably also know people who believe that they're a psychic, who, who may be or may not be, we all, I, I know somebody, several people, several women, who believe that they can see angels. And I tell a story about the psychic power of... I, sometimes when I'm, I'm having difficulty sleeping, my wife Rachel, who's really quite adept and quite psychic and has some, certainly some extra kind of healing powers, will say to me, do you want me to send you a sleep bubble? And I, and I often kind of go, no, of course I don't need you to send me a bloody sleep bubble. I'll just... Take more codeine, and she's uh, sleep bubbles not being sufficiently so, rock so, and roll. So really. anyway, no, it's not very rock and roll. So I go, yes, darling, that would be lovely, thank you. And my head hits the pillow, and I black out. Either she's hypnotising me, or she's really sending me a, a sleep bubble, or maybe I'm just cooperating with her eccentricities. I don't know what, but her sleep bubbles work. To hear the rest of the interview, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash books podcast. Next. As James Forsyth mentioned earlier, one of the turning points yet to come in this election is Trump's visit next week. Sir Christopher Mayer, former ambassador to Washington, writes in this week's issue that once upon a time there was a sacred convention of non-interference among Western democracies. Yet Trump is anything but a conventional president. So how badly can this visit go for Boris Johnson? Sir Christopher joins me now, together with US commentator Kate Andrews. So, Christopher, how high are the stakes of the Trump visit? I think the stakes are very high, both for the NATO organisation itself. Of course, it's in a bit of a crisis with Macron going around saying it's brain dead and the Germans getting upset about this. And then leave aside the general election, which one might come to in a moment. There is Donald Trump has not given up his campaign mm. about getting the European allies in particular to pay more for the common defence. Now, I think Stoltenberg is going around saying people have pledged another $100 billion, but I, you, they can pledge, but to actually see the money being spent, you can have doubts. So I think, there, I think there's, a, there's a lot at stake for NATO. This is heightened by it being an anniversary, a 70th anniversary. Be perfectly frank, since the demise of the Soviet Union... NATO has sort of, uh, sort of flopped around a bit, mm. trying to find a different, a different and creditable role. Unfortunately, President Putin has come along and supplied it. So it's very, the stakes are very, very high for NATO. But they're massive for Boris, because my view is, although I adore the United States and I could easily live there and did live there for an, a total of 11 years, I think that if Donald Trump were to be tempted to intervene in the election campaign, on the side of Boris, or even to say something favourable about about Nigel Farage, it could lead to a very serious... It could, could lead to mm. a very serious detonation, which could knock Boris off course, because it would give ammunition to people like uh, Jeremy Corbyn, 
and all their anti-Americanism, and in particular the stuff that they're saying about the uh, National Health Service, even though it was Tony Blair who I think first let in the big private health corporation of the United States to invest in parts of the of the NHS. So stakes massive. Mm. And Kate, what should Boris Johnson's Trump strategy be? Should he go for a cold shoulder to show that he is not going for a Trump alliance or would that risk a future trade negotiation? Distance, I would assume, is key. It's not even clear that the UK will be negotiating with a Donald Trump president in, in a year or two's time. They may be. But in, in this NATO summit in particular, I think Boris Johnson really needs to keep a bit of distance from Donald Trump because people are just ready to go with those accusations about the NHS and a trade deal. It is, of course, baffling because, you know, many Remainers who quite rightly support free trade and, you know, zero tariffs with the European Union have really turned on the idea of a US-UK free trade deal. I think um, it could, you know, benefit consumers on both sides of the palm. But right now it's very politically toxic Mm. and it's not something he wants to, to touch on. But if I can just speak to NATO a bit broader, I mean, I think a lot of listeners out there will be becoming increasingly anxious about their Christmas dinner this year because with Boris and Brexit and Trump and the rest last year, it may have blown up. And, you know, they're preparing to see their family again. You know, are we going to relive it? That's basically the NATO summit. I mean, all the reports have been that they are terrified of repeating what happened last year where Trump went off about spending and, and contributions from European members. He attacked Germany personally over a pipeline um, bringing in oil from Russia. And people just don't want to relive it. So everyone's going to be trying to get along better. The question is, can they actually do it? And so, Christopher, you write us also as well about when you first joined the Foreign Office and there was a well-nigh sacred convention to not interfere in other Western countries' domestic business, especially during an election. Do you think that's changed in the years since? Do America and Britain really respect that now? Well, by and large, if you take a long view, it's broadly speaking, been respected. But there have been some very big exceptions that prove the rule, if you like, and some of them have popped up in the Anglo-American relationship. And I think this is in part not because presidents and prime ministers are monstrously indiscreet, although one or two of them are, have been. Um, it is because there's a certain intimacy in the relationship which makes one side feel that they can actually sort of talk about the other side. But I don't think anybody has set out either in Washington or in uh, London deliberately to change the calculus for any presidential election that may take place. Until, until, I think the person who really broke the mould was President Obama when he came over here in 2016. And we are told, it's in various memoirs, at uh, David Cameron's behest, he decided, now he says against his better judgment, to intervene in the referendum campaign. And we had the notorious statement where he said that the UK would be put to the back of the queue in the negotiation of any free trade agreement. And that was a deliberate attempt to put the frighteners on those who were going to vote leave. And it was actually part of, yeah, I don't think Obama really knew it, it was part of Project Fear. Mm-hmm. And I think that rebounded very, very negatively because of the Cameron Osborne strategy was to parade in front of the TV cameras a lot of the great and good from, in, from international politics, from the IMF, Christine Lagarde, people like her, the Director General of WTO, over whom nobody had ever heard, and one or two other people like that. And then along comes Obama. And I think it pissed off a lot of people. Yeah. They're pushing us around. These people have no understanding of our daily lives and why we are voting, want to vote to leave. 
And I think after that, the floodgates opened. And the floodgates, the flood is in effect Donald Trump, who has not hesitated, loves talking about other people's politics in Israel, Ukraine, I don't know where, but, but, but also in the UK. Saying Theresa May's deal was a load of rubbish and, um, and she doesn't know how to negotiate. Boris's deal wasn't that good either. Going behind, uh, putting a hand on the shoulder of Farage. So he, he thinks domestic politics in other countries are theirs for him, for him to intervene in. Probably because he thinks we're going to welcome his advice. Is he trying to help? Is he well-intentioned in that? Well, I think there's a... I mean, Kate knows much better than I do, but I smell there is a genuine belief that people should be grateful for his <laughs> advice because he's, he's all-wise and all-knowing and you know, art of the deal and all, that, and all that stuff. But I also think there's another thing which is more malign, which is when the stuff going on in the States from which he really wants to distract attention, and there's a lot of stuff at the moment because of, because of the impeachment process, he thinks if he can make an explosion somewhere else, it'll distract attention yeah. from whatever is going on in the US. It's cynical but true. I think the look-over-here tactic is something that Trump has used on multiple occasions. But what we also know about the president is that he's very keen to impress or be kind to people who are right in front of him. So despite, you know, lambasting Mrs. May, her negotiation tactics, her trade deal, when he was actually on the platform with her in front of the journalist, he says some delightful things about her. I mean, he praised her. He said she was great. Um, You know, similar to Boris Johnson, when he's in the room with him, you know, he wants to be his best friend, but then he goes on Nigel Farage's LBC radio show and he criticizes Boris and he wants to be Nigel Farage's best friend. We've seen it in the most extreme when he went to, you know, meet Kim Jong-un. And <laughs> seriously, I mean, was said some very nice things about the dictator to his face, you know, despite having riled up on Twitter between the two of them serious accusations and attacks on one another. When Trump is in the room with someone, he wants to get along. And I think that probably does come back to his art of the deal, his yeah. business strategies from the past. So you might think that Boris Johnson's in a bit of a safe zone when he's actually in the room with Donald Trump. Of course, that makes it harder to keep a bit of distance. But, you know, perhaps Boris Johnson, what I do think he's best at, which is, you know, being friendly, negotiating, mm. getting people on side. Maybe those qualities in him will prove successful at this NATO summit to get Trump to keep his mouth shut. And Christopher, finally, you write that you hope this NATO summit will be a moment of renewal for the alliance. What would that look like? And do you think that will actually happen? Well, it would be very good if everybody could put to bed this business about money and that there were pledges sufficiently persuasive to tell Washington, which after all, this is an issue which has been going on between Europe and the United States for since almost the beginning of NATO, that this is now dealt with. There needs to be something else And I think there is a thing brewing inside NATO to create Mm. some kind of brain's trust of people who can think strategically to stop Macron saying that the organisation is brain dead, it's dead. And I think there's a subplot here as well which needs to be dealt with as well, if possible, within the confines of the summit to get France and Germany pulling in the same direction at the same time because there's a lot of evidence that they have very different views about the future and there is a notion that there's a kind of Macron power play going on here mm. to wrest control of Europe, will be the, the most influ- influential power in Europe, from Germany. 
And I think there's another subplot going on here that uh, the international leaders are almost competing for whose frustration is most important when it comes to organizations like NATO. From Donald Trump's perspective, you know, he ha- he is trying to pull back from the U.S.'s more globalist attitude of the past. He's frustrated overall with international organizations. Then on Macron's side, I mean, you know, he paints himself as a globalist. He's frustrated that these organizations aren't getting more prominence and aren't working better. And then you've got Boris Johnson in the middle, who I actually think is probably quite desperate to try to paint Britain to be more globalist now that it's Brexiting, to have that positive vision of Brexit, but has to play a very careful game because of the politics, because of the opposition leader who's trying to become prime minister, who, as Sir Christopher said, has a very negative attitude towards America. So this is all a balancing act, lots of competing frustrations. And as I said earlier, the goal is that it doesn't all simmer so much that it actually boils over this time like it did last year. Thanks, Kate and Christopher. And if you'd like to hear more from Kate, we're delighted to say that she'll be joining The Spectator in the new year as the economics correspondent. So do stay tuned. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk. Where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Bryony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes store. And last, it's frequently said that communism has never been tried properly. If it wasn't for the power-hungry dictators who hijacked the levers of state, then a collectivist utopia might really have been built. Historian Johann Norberg disputes that claim in this week's issue. Taking a close look at the socialist kibbutzim that dotted 20th century Israel and why they failed. He joins me from Stockholm now. Johan, for listeners who might not know, can you briefly explain what the kibbutz was? Well, this was all the rage in Israel in the 1950s, 60s and and 70s. It was basically the idea of um, living and working cooperatively in collectives of some 400 to 500 people as as one big happy family with the same kind of work, the same kind of pay, and all according to socialist principles. The idea was that this was the place to realize the ideals of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And they were very, very um, conscious about this, that this was to be a way of creating new generations of Zionist socialists, basically, who realised the ideals of socialism in Israel. And you say that they were all the rage. I mean, just give us an idea of how popular they were. Well, in the 1950s, some 65,000 people lived in in a kibbutzim. And that means it's slightly more than 5% of the population. Uh, But it's more than that, because they were also seen as the kind of the young people who did the right thing, the thing that we, that lots of people, mm. perhaps even the majority, aspired to, but didn't really want to go through the the movements. So they were seen as the the pioneers of, of creating a new and fairer society. Yeah, and except you say that they didn't really work, you write that they were a complete unalloyed disaster. What happened? Yeah, it, it is very interesting because, you know, after the failures of real existing communism in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union, people have said that there is one version of socialism that didn't fail, the kind of voluntary libertarian socialism of the kibbutz movement in Israel. But in fact, it also failed. As um, one of the kibbutz veterans put it, they became, after a while, a paradise for parasites. 
Because the problem with this ideal of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs is that no one really wants to be seen as able and everybody is very needy. So it was difficult to get people to do the work that they had to do, farming the land. And and everybody was very, very needy. Sort of when everything was for free, they... um, kept the lights, the heats on night and day, the food in the communal dining hall. Well, it was for free. So people invited friends. They invited acquaintances that they just met. They even had their dogs and their cats coming to the dining hall and feeding them all that, all the best food because it was for free. So it had all the the normal problems that we associate with a socialist economy. And there was also another quite idealistic part of the kibbutz, wasn't there? I mean, there was the separation of children. You write about how kids were taken from their parents and put into houses um, where they would grow up together. There was no individualism in that sense. Yes, and this was seen as a great experiment. This was the way to forge a new generation, not used to everything that's tainted by old world capitalism, property rights, selfishness and so on. So first of all, Children were supposed to be brought up communally in, a, in separate children houses by a basically a social worker rather than their parents. Some children did enjoy that, according to uh, biographies, but we are all different. Many hated it as well and have talked about the anxiety of being ripped from their parents every night when they wake up in the middle of the night in a nightmare, no parents are there, and really being exposed to gangs of kids and well you know how kids can can be and behave so many begged their parents to leave the kibbutz and leave for the city just in order to to be with their parents instead and this began to this was one of the reasons why the kibbutz ideals were um, starting to be dismantled in the 1970s because the women who had been brought up themselves under these circumstances in separate children homes, they didn't want the same thing for their kids. They wanted their kids close to them. So they demanded that and many kibbutzes did just that. And that also created a demand for bigger living spaces because then you need another bedroom and some wanted to prepare food for the family rather for the, than for the whole collective. And so in a way, it was the Pandora, Pandora's box of individualism being opened up. It's, it's, it's a thing of the past, the kibbutz, although there are a few still remaining. But you write that many people still remember them quite fondly, including, it seems, some people influential in the Labour Party. Yeah, well, there's, there's definitely an individual, a personal link, because John Lansman, uh, one of Corbyn's ideologues, the founder of Momentum, he lived and worked on a kibbutz in his youth, and he has called it a very politicizing experience and talked about how he admired the sense of community and the, the radicalism of it, even though he thought that they had began to compromise too much at that stage. He was very disappointed that there wasn't a, an, a separate children's uh, house <laughs> on the kibbutz where he worked. But there is also this, the the kibbutz, you can still see this as an ideal for many of the socialists in Britain and in other European countries, because, you know, they are so eager to say that, look, the ideals of socialism didn't fail. It was just the dictatorships, the the walls and the barbed wire, that failed. But the ideals are good, so we can separate the nice ends from the brutal means. We can make a success of it. 
and and then they can point to the kibbutz. But then it becomes complicated because that was a, a libertarian voluntary version and that also failed completely because the ideals didn't seem to be in tune with human nature. And of course, then statist socialists had their own solution to the problems of, of the kibbutz. If people don't want to work, yes, well, just force them to work. If they want to leave, well, build a wall, build barbed wire instead. If people don't want um, communal dining halls and communal clothes and so on, just force them. So in a way, you can say that it wasn't really the brutal means that destroyed socialism. It was the case that socialism wasn't in line with human nature. So governments had to force it onto people if they were to keep them in check. Johan Norberg, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Do pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as more from Sam Leith on Pete Townsend, Andrew Marr's diary and Andy Coulson's notebook. And you can pick up 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, as well as a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. (laughs) 